We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Can you explain to the folks why it has been three albums from you in like 15 years? It's hard to look at those statistics for me because I want to be prolific and I feel like I'm definitely moving into a period where there's like more ideas and more skill, I guess I've learned, you know. I think I I take a long time to do things. I think I second guess myself probably too much. And there's definitely a thing about, you know, that first record was so successful. And then I felt with the C, I was given a lot of space because I had started to write that record. And then, you know, halfway through the record, my late husband died completely unexpectedly. And so in my world, that was sort of like, that was the end of my life. You know, I thought, well, this is the end of my life. And I thought, well, I've had a really good life, you know. I'm 29 and I've done all this, I've done all this stuff. And um, the time just became really sort of elastic, I guess. Corinne Bailey Ray is one of the great singers of the modern era. She was famous from her first album, but she hadn't done that many albums over the last 15 years. We talk about that. We talk about how the death of her first husband affected her. We talk about how she's right now working on a new album and what's going on with that. It's really interesting to talk with somebody who's really, really intelligent about music, about her music. It's Corinne Bailey Ray on Torre Show. What was the first time that you sang and you felt like, oh yeah, this is for me. I love this. I feel this in my bones of like, this is the best thing in the world. I think it was when I was really young. I remember being doing this Christmas concert at school and uh, I remember the teacher going down the, the line. We had a bench and there was a few of us sat on the bench, bench and she wanted us to sing this one part. She was looking for someone to sing it. So I must be like six or something. But I remember her going down saying like, I just want you to sing this one line. It was from, I don't know, this Christmas song. And, uh, you know, so she's like pointing to the person next to me and they had a go and then she was like, mm, and she pointed to the person. To, and I remember this excitement of thinking like, you know, ask me, ask me. I, like, I know I'll be able to do it. And, I, and she did ask me and I did sing. And then I, I was chosen to do that part in the play. So I liked the feeling of, 
excitement and anticipation. Like, I think this is something I can do, but it hasn't been tested. And then it got like instantly tested by, this was like the head teacher of the whole school, you know? And, and I thought, I, I thought I could do that. And then I tried to do it and I did do it. And then, yeah, just, I don't even remember the performance, but I remember that like audition moment and that feeling of um, having a wish come true. And I thought, yeah, I absolutely love that. Do you and remember guess, her reaction to you singing? Like, was she like, oh, wow, that was really good? I don't remember. I mean, she must have thought it was good enough to be like, she chose me, I don't know, out of the 30 kids. It probably wasn't a very wide group. But yeah, I remember it, her instantly being like, you know, yes, you can do that part. And that's what I really loved, you know, just the the, the wish coming true. When did you When did you start to think, I could do this for a job? I guess I was in this indie band when I was a teenager and everybody I knew was in a band because it was like grunge. So that was what you did. Like you didn't play computer games or you didn't, you know, there was no other activities. It was like everyone played guitar and everyone had a band. Everybody I knew was, who was in a band who was in the vaguely sort of alternative world, which was everyone because it was like, I don't know, 1997 or something. It's 1994, I guess, when I started that band because I was 15. And I remember there was a few bands in our city that were kind of doing well. And then I remember going to watch a band. And they were just a few years older than us, but they weren't going to finish school because they'd been signed to a label. I remember thinking like, oh, you could do that. You could get signed. You could get paid. You could go on tour. Um, you can make a record. That was as big as I had sort of dreamed it. You know, like they were touring in the UK and I was like, I'd love to tour in the UK and love to make a record. And so that's what I thought, oh, I'd love, you know, so then it was just like, I, oh, we always worked on a band and we had no, we had no um, like holidays. We'd just always be really earnest, you know, writing and just trying to like enter every competition we could it's really hard to get recording in those days, you know. So we won a bunch of things and I always thought that we'd, you know, make it with that band, but it wasn't to be. But the band, the band was called Helen. So that was my dream to be like fronting Helen and sort of being, hitting the big time of like the indie clubs of, of the UK. You know, that, that was as big as my ambition was. And I, I really loved being in that band. So who were you listening to at that sort of development stage who was sort of informing the singer you would become? Like, like who are your mothers and fathers almost as a singer? Well, it's funny because at that time I would have said like the father, the, the person that was listening to the most at the time would be Kurt Cobain. So it's like the, that voice was a revolution to me. It was like, it's so sort of raw and so true that MTV Unplugged, you know, my friend had taped it off the TV on a VHS. So it was like every day after school, we'd go around like, watch that, watch that. What's he doing? He sounds like he's just talking or he sounds like his, he, he sounds like his throat's going to break, but he's still sort of playing it and he would just have that like cardigan on. And then we'd be looking at his fingers because, you know, there was no YouTube. It was like, rewind that part what what is he doing and then just even getting into bar chords like once you've learned to clamp onto that shape is that you can send it up and down the, the guitar and so I, I loved Nirvana I loved Bjork because that was this totally sort of unconventional voice but also I loved her I guess she had that like 
girl womanhood. So it wasn't, I guess, so many people in, say, R&B at the time were really like, my whole thing is sexy and I'm, you know, and and her thing was like really kind of girlish and, you know, very womanly and together, but not like sex is part of what I'm selling you as my music. So that really inspired me. And then, you know, hearing Billie Holiday as a teenager was another revelation as well of just hearing someone who had a lot of texture in their voice. Um, and, and I had always had this texture to my voice, which I had bemoaned as a child because it didn't fit in with any of the music we used to do at school, which was all, I guess, like West End musicals, you know, so you had to have this really clear, pure voice. And that's the real, you know, the desire for like the English voice and it's all traditional music and I guess the music at our school was quite traditional and choral and so I didn't really fit in with that and I was in orchestra I played the violin but whenever they did musical stuff it was always like these big grand voices or it's always these really pure sort of choral things so I never fit in with that so yeah Billie Holiday was like oh that's something I've never heard before you know just this gravelly sort of textured like insistent conversational and then like hearing Kurt Cobain and then hearing Bjork with her more unusual pronunciations as well so I was just like oh okay it's 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 open now singing is open to me you know and I'd grown up with R&B and and funk and soul because my that's what my parents were into but I didn't see that as music that I could make I guess mainly because I had come out of this more punk DIY thing where it's like well, we want to write our own songs. We're just learning the guitar from watching MTV Unplugged. So we're not going to be able to be like Stevie Wonder complex kind of jazz harmony. You know, we haven't had those music lessons. We just want to write like, we, we want that thing of like, you've learned three chords now, now write all the songs you can think of. So, so I, I have that. Billie Holiday is... Uh, not a surprise as a core inspiration because you evoke that vibe for me and for a lot of people now um, in terms of the depth of the sound, in terms of where the sound seems to come from inside of you. Um, I mean, it, it definitely seems like she's listened to Billie Holiday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely love her and I didn't discover her till I was a teenager. Um, it was there was one of those adverts on TV. You might not have had them in America, but we had this thing where you could go to the post office, you know, and then you got like a binder and it was jazz great. So the first one was Billie Holiday and that was, that was the cheapest because it was the first one. And that was like, I don't know, one ninety nine. And, you know, my family, we didn't have that. When we were growing up, the three of us, we didn't really have spare money, you know, because it was three girls. And um, so the fact that it was, this singer and it was cheap and I could just go up the street and get it. I was just like, mom, mom, I've, heard, I've just heard of this singer. And she's got, mom was like, I love Billie Holiday. And I have seen this film with um, Diana Ross where she's played by Billie Holiday. And I was like, well, we've never listened to Billie Holiday before, you know, and we didn't have any of her records. So that it was really revolutionary to me of like, you can sing, but you can bend up to notes. I had always, had to do that because I have never been able to just land like here's my like right in the middle of the target intonation and so it was I loved hearing it but my first response was like how come I didn't hear his voice when I was seven or eight or ten or twelve or 
when it would have made me feel a different way about my own singing. So it's instantly, it made me feel a different way about the sound I could make because up until then I would be listening to like emotions by Mariah Carey and thinking, why? You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I want to sound like that, but I just, I can't get that sound to come out. I've got this, this, this texture around my voice that I just can't get rid of. So yeah, so hearing Billie, Billie Holiday was a, a big thing for me. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. It's funny to hear you say that you sort of envied Mariah. I mean, Mariah is like an extraordinary athlete, but you're a real singer, like a real singer. And, and there's a lot of things that you can do with your voice. I don't think of your voice as like, she's limited and she's getting by on like personality or, (laughs) oh, that's good. I mean, I guess everyone feels like funny about their own instrument or whatever. And I feel like I've definitely come into it and, and on my best days when it's like, I've slept, I'm rested. I don't have a cold. I feel when I get to sing it, it feels to me like flying. It's like an out of body experience. It's like I'm in front of the audience, but I'm not really there. I'm just in my total element, you know, and then when the song finishes or the people clap, I am always kind of like sort of shaken out of it because on a, on a really good show um, where I guess the audience is really with us and, and I feel like I can do what I love to do then it re- it does really click in. You know, I feel like I'm not a natural performer. Like I, I'm not the sort of person that goes to a party and it's like, right, everyone, I'm here. Let the <laughs> fun commence. You know, like I'm the center of attention. I'm going to regale you with stories. And um, I don't really feel like I'm that person. So I, I can't, I feel like I can't turn it on is what I'm trying to say. And I've been at, I've been at plenty, plenty of things now, you know, especially TV shows where it's like, here's your two minutes and 30 seconds, you know, and you're just like, ah, exactly. I just get terrified. But when I've got that, it's an hour, it's an hour and a half and I get to walk on stage and you hear that applause and then you think, right, we're here. And you kind of like, I don't know, take the energy from that moment. Then I really feel like something just happens, you know, when, when the, the music comes together and, you know, we always play live. We don't use backing tracks. We don't use click tracks. So I always feel it's just, anything could happen and that kind of focuses me in a way that I can't get in any other context, you know, even the studio. So do you um, feel like you're flying the whole time or is it like, you know, like, like you get into that moment, that moment, the big part of the song and you're now you're like, now I'm levitating. Yeah. I feel like it's a moment. It might be like a few songs in. So I think the first few songs, like, right, is everything working? Can I hear myself? I see the photographers, right? I do my first track and then like, I've got to pick up my guitar. Da, 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 is it in tune? And it's 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 kind of org- more organized. I'm like, you were just doing, we're kind of laying the foundations or whatever. And, you know, what kind of room is it? Is there a bar at the back? Are people talking? Is it is there wings? Am I looking at the balcony? So it's like the first few songs, I feel like I'm taking it all in. And then there'll just be a moment where it switches. It might happen in like third song or the fourth song or 
where it just goes into another thing where it's like, I feel like I'm there, but I'm not really there. And that is what I, that high can sustain me for a really long time, you know, (laughs) really long time. (laughs) It sounds amazing. Um, Do you love the sound of your voice? I like the feeling of singing. That's what I guess I would say. Like, I don't, I don't like, um, you know, if I'm somewhere like a restaurant or a supermarket or someone else's house, you know, or like the one, one you'll do is like going to get your hair cut and they'll say, Hey, let's listen to your music or something. Or like, let's put on Karim Bailey Ray Pandora or something. So it's like, you can relax and then something will pop up. It's my own song. And I, and I, you know, because I'm a producer as well, it's like all the time I'm just taking it apart. I'm like, oh, we should have kept the drums going in that second verse or, oh, we should have, you know, it should be compressed more heavily so that it bounce out the speakers more or why didn't I brighten the vocal here or that could, that could have been made more of. So, yeah, I find, especially my own re- records, I find it hard to listen back to Um until you know several years later but yeah straight away I just I don't like to listen to it because I like to be in it I don't like to analyze it from the outside because I I don't have that amount of technical skill I guess or perception whatever I may jump back for a second because the first name that you said in terms of influences was Kurt Cobain and he I loved Nirvana he was a very powerful communicator but he was just barely singing. He, he uh, was, you know, it was well, really like. It's funny when you listen back to Nirvana, it's so much more melodic than you remember it being. Because I guess at the time it was, it was so radical because it was like pared down melod- melodies and really repet- repetitive and rhythmical. But now when I listen to it, I think actually that's quite melodic, especially compared to say, I don't know, like a trap vocal, which might be even more horizontal and all about the the melody um, sorry all about the rhythm and might be just moving between you know like the the music that say I would say Rihanna brought into popular culture where it's like it's a lot about the rhythm and about a kind of horizontal melody you know if you compare like Nirvana to that it sounds like nursery rhymes or something it really is it's really uh it's very melodic and up and down and you know so I listened to it recently. I was like, wow, this is, this is pop music actually, you know? And it was, I mean, it was, it was just like, it was everywhere. He's so low and so low sort of energy, low tonally. And really, I I mean, like, like I said, barely a singer and you're a real singer. And I wonder like what you take from his influence when I'm like, what you're doing seems to me like, a planet away from what he was doing. Oh, that's really kind. Well, I guess, you know, I've got more into soulful vocals as I've got older and being more free and being more confident in my voice. You know, I worked in a jazz and soul club when I was at university. So I was doing English literature and then I would walk from my lecture hall to this club called The Underground, which was, it was maybe about a 10 minute walk. So I'd walk in my kind of, thick built up kind of Spice Girls sketches and my silver Bjork, you know, long skirt. And I would walk from university to this club and it was really immersive 
uh, immersive experience of being around jazz because it was meeting jazz musicians for the first time. So people who weren't bothered about getting the mortgage, getting the car, getting the high status job. It was like, you know, some of them had studied, some of them hadn't, but they were there and they just were living it and they were doing like three gigs a day. And there was, you know, it was like the old days. It's like people smoking in a dark room and, but everyone's like 20 and, and, uh, you know, thinks they're going to live forever. And the people are discussing like politics and art and someone's read this philosopher. And it was very, I really liked that scene and I hadn't been around a sort of community like that, I guess, outside of church, which I'd, you know, grown up in. So it's like this bunch of people who really cared for each other and supported each other and believed in each other and were really committed to, I guess, soul music and jazz and and then like, you know, hip hop and it even ha- it, one of the nights was a salsa night. So that that had there was that community as well. There's quite a lot of Brazilian people in Leeds as well. So but that for me was just like a real awakening. And I remember I would get up and sing with those bands. So I wasn't playing my guitar, so I wasn't limited to kind of what I could do on the guitar. It was suddenly like, oh, what happens if I sing this Curtis Mayfield song? Or what happens if I sing this Bill Withers song? Or this Aretha Franklin song? Or, you know, they were so good. And it made me feel like I was on a sort of magic carpet or something. Like I, I sort of couldn't go wrong that, you know, they were all a bit older than me. and and um that was an awakening as well. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. 
Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I was like, oh, I really like, I like singing other people's music. I like singing this freeway. And I like singing, I guess, where I don't have to go at the, the speed of the slowest member. So, I mean, all of us in our band, we were all just like, just getting by on our instruments. And that was the, that was the thing. It was like punk, more of a punk band. Whereas this was like, Ooh, when you play with people who are miles better than you, it it makes it turns your thing into something else. So that was a revelation. Let's talk about you talk about some of the singers you love, but let's talk about um, are there songs that you other people's songs that you loved that were like for me as a singer, like this is the song. Um, I mean, I guess at that time I would have sang like sort of any Stevie Wonder song. With, was just like a map of how to how to tell a story and all his sort of turns and phrases and where where he sort of pulled back and I guess we used to sing like like even like my sherry and more I just used to be like oh this just is so romantic and beautiful but you know um I guess I was at the time I was falling in love with a person who played the saxophone at the same club so I would get up and play and then like he would be there and I'd be there and mm, I liked your thing, oh, I like your thing. And it was, so it was very, it was like every time I went to sing, like he would be there and I'd be thinking like, I wonder if he is into this or I wonder if he's getting like the secret message of this massively obvious love song, you know, that I'm doing or what, whatever it would be, you know. So um, I think, yeah, I, ch- I chose a lot of things which is like, you know, you can't see the way I feel, but but here it is. But yeah, I mean, I fell in love with Bill Withers. Uh, love Bill Withers, sort of paired back, sort of honest, you know, storytelling. Uh, I mean, I, I absolutely built love Bill Withers still, and you know, on a daily basis, just like reflect on his songwriting and uh, the the simplicity of it and the truth of it, you know, and write something like I can't write left handed. Or uh, or ain't no sunshine or grandma's hands or um, yeah just they're, they're they're amazing stories. Grandma's hands is such an amazing story, you know, because so many songs are about loving um, somebody who's abstract, right? Like I love you, you're amazing, you're the perfect person. But like grandma's hands, it just tells the story, and it's familial love, not romantic yes. love. Yeah, and it's, it's like a poem. I, absolutely. And to focus on a part of the body of a person as well. It's not like grandma's smile. It's it's sort of like the actions of this person are the things that made me love them. Um, yeah, it, it's incredible. And again, that sort of is, is he's so earthy and he's so real. And I don't know, you feel like if you're in the room with him, you would just be able to sort of look into your soul, you know, or say, when I think of Bill Withers, I think, it's like a thing of stripping off. Like when you're writing songs, like you're stripping off phoniness and you just, you just got to pare it down to, to what's real. You know, I've seen interviews with him where he's like, he's getting offered record contracts, but he's like, well, I've got a really good job fixing these toilets on these aeroplanes. You know, he's just, he sort of doesn't need the, 
he's not into it for the showbiz, you know, and, and, um, yeah, I mean, he, I mean he's Steve, a really remarkable writer. Stevie Wonder has done it so many times, and I can barely think of just one, but as comes to mind as just one of his towering achievements, uh, and, yeah. and it and it it builds to this crescendo, right? Like it starts like kind of small, and then it builds. He's like screaming his love from the mountaintops, yeah. and yeah. like yeah. you know, it's just a story. It's an amazing story. And and to me, Stephen has that thing where it's like he has total freedom. And I, you know, I'm a fan of like his historic work, but also just being at the school of Stevie Wonder, which is like going to a show now that he does where you're just like, how is he still doing this? But, you know, hearing him, like he's just leaping all over the place. You feel like there's nothing he can't do with his voice, but he also has this absolute freedom when he's on stage where it's like, he'll just hop around his career. The band needs to know everything because he might just decide to do something that he hasn't done for, you know, five years or whatever, 10 years. But also he can sometimes, like sometimes he might forget a word or, or a line and he'll laugh and he'll, you know, like style it out. Like he, he's just, he's so sort of bold. Like he can't make a mistake. Everything he does is just really beautiful. That's not uncommon, right? For like a professional singer to like forget part of the verse. Yeah. And kind of, right, be on stage, you kind of like just... La 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 la, and like, yeah. right? Like you, like you've but done also, that, right? I mean, Stevie must have this amazing memory because if you think I've been to lots of big shows where basically people definitely have like an auto cue with the words of their own songs because they're doing like fifty years of music, and you think, fair enough. Well, obviously, Stevie just has it all in his head. He's not reading the the melodies and the words. Maybe like you. Have I done that before? Do you know, I haven't really done it with my own songs, but I feel like I've done it on like major, like TV things, like say it's the Grammys, but it's an edit of your own song. So it's so you miss out the second verse and you flip to this, da, da, da. And I always just feel like, I call it an American thing. It's like Americans, they just make me feel really unprofessional because I'll be doing stuff with like people and they're just like, oh yeah, you drop this and then this and this and then it's got three stabs and we do the chord check, the key change and then, and I'm always in the rehearsal, like, oh, oh I'm not going to be able to remember this. And so many times I've got that sickening thing where it's like, you know, the orchestra has gone on to the next section. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we're meant to miss out that verse. So I've had loads of things like that. Or like times when I've fluff lines of other people's songs, I've, you know, I've learned especially because it's a performance in front of like, I don't know, Quincy Jones, or you know, and you just, <laughs> other people don't tend to notice, but I come off stage like, Oh, well, that's the end of my life. You know, why did that was my chance? You know, why did I do that? It's so, uh, yeah, it's really hard when the, things like that go wrong. But I've had the opposite where, I, like, I sang um, Baby, Baby, you know, a Smokey Robinson song, but it was like a Smokey Robinson tribute to, where, to him where he was there and uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And I knew he was there. And it's like, I felt like it just, it just, happened you know and then afterwards he was like oh you sang the shit out of that song and I was like that was freaky like I just remember that forever like I that's all the praise I need you know right yeah Um, it was Ricky Robinson tell me about writing a song how do you write a song how do I write a song I 
most of the time when I write songs, well, I guess until recently, most of the time I've written songs, I'll have my guitar and I'll just be finding shapes, finding shapes, finding shapes, playing chords. And when I hit on some, and I'll be singing out at the same time, and sometimes one line will come out and I'll think, oh, I really like that. You know, it, I haven't really, I haven't planned it ahead. So it's like, it'll happen that I'll hit a certain chord and I'll sing a certain line with some words and a melody. And then I think, right, that's my, that's my fragment or whatever. Like that's my sort of golden piece. And then I'll just keep going and keep going. And then I might get like a little chain of those. And when I've got something that I feel is, it might be just like a bit of a verse or a bit of a chorus or a bit of a bridge. And then it's a case of trying other things to see if it fits or, you know, I, ha- I have had things before, especially more harmonically simple things. Um, there's something in my last record called uh, a song called Walk On where it did all just come out in one go because it's just literally, I'm playing two chords on the piano. I don't play the piano. So it's like, I'm just plonking my hands and remembering, plonk it there and then put it here. But this thing's coming out more like a sort of stream of consciousness. Um, and that's how I tend to write, just kind of let, letting things flood out. I guess there's other situations where I write with people. And, you know, sometimes that's successful if I can feel comfortable and, and confident. And then there's other times where it's like the thing in me that comes out just kind of hides away, you know, and then it's, then it's, it makes it difficult, you know, mm. when it's like that. Yeah. And then, and then more recently I've, I've been writing, I've been writing this record where I'm sort of responding to these objects. So, and I didn't set out to do it, but I just saw I was in this art space and I saw something. And then when I left, I realized that I was thinking about the, it was, this thing was a pot, you know, so I was, I was just thinking about this pot, you know. Are you always open or is it like, okay, now I'm getting into album mode now I need to be like open to the universe and to inspiration. I feel like I'm always open to it. I mean, if I'm on a really full on tour where, where it's just like, got to eat, got to sleep, got to get on this plane, got to, I'm less likely to be in the mode of like, yeah, I'm looking at leaves. But then sometimes even when you're, you know, a, a good long um, plane journey will do it, you know, where, especially before you had Wi-Fi on planes or whatever. It's just like, I'm tired. I've had a little sleep. I've had some food. And now my brain's just, you know, 10 more hours to go. I feel like your imagination just helps to entertain you. So sometimes it'll, I've got so many like voice notes of like, ah, you know, just like singing little, like things that when I go back to them, they don't make any sense. But at the time, on the way to Japan, like seven hours into the flight, I just have to get it down. It's like mostly background noise, but then something in there, like some melody that I'm like, yeah, I need to do something with this. But so. you're in album mode now, right? Yes, I'm in album mode now. I mean, I'm quite far into this record that I'm writing. I guess I'm closer to finishing it, I guess. Wow. But, How many know, songs it, are done? It, it always takes me a long time to make re- records because I because I write them and because I'm producing as well. And that's, it's always a bit of a sore point, I guess, with people that I work with, but I really like making, I really like making music. To me, that's a massive fun part of it. Like you've written the song, but you think, 
well, is this bit going to be strings or is this bit going to be synths or is this bit going to be quiet or is this bit going to be just me and the, we're dropping out the drums or is it going to be this amazing drum I know or are we going to program it or are we going to have horns or is it going to be is it going to be guitar takes and then how many guitar takes are we going to do and then is it going to be crazy delays or how are we going to make is it going to be a stark or is it going to be like weird reverb world like all of those questions to me are fascinating and fun and I like to play and I like to get it wrong and you know, I, I've definitely made stuff where I feel like I haven't got it right, you know, and maybe someone else would have done a better job of producing it. But at the same time, that to me is, that's so much of the fun of it. And I have tried it the other way around. And, you know, especially being on a labor, it's like, this person is, you know, it's like that Zoolander thing where it's like, this person is so hot right now. You know, if you work with X, everything's going to be, you know, so... And frequently, I feel bad for that person, but whoever X is, is busy. The, the person who ever is X at that time is so busy that even if they just loved you and they were like, I really want to produce your record. You know, I've been in situations with people like who are literally like the hottest thing on the planet. It's like, right let's write a song together and okay so they're in the studio they may or may not be several hours late and then when you get there it's like right let's do let's work on this and and then like maybe 45 minutes into it they're like okay when you get some ideas you tell Jeff okay Jeff's gonna record them and then I'm gonna be down the hall because I've got another artist in this studio and I'm going to be working with them. But then when you get your thing and you're just like, I, the thing that's in me that can create just hides away at that moment. It's not even like, um, I feel offended. I just feel like I just don't know how to do it like that. You know, I just don't know how to do it like that. So I have had an, a few run-ins with people who are just like in the white heat of success and trying to mesh with them is so hard and just in a, like, just always just seems to go wrong for me so you know like there's been plenty of years where I thought like I'm the only person who didn't have a hit with X because we tried it out and it just it didn't, work. didn't work can you tell me how many songs are done for the new record and is there a general tone or inspiration to this one that we can characterize well, this record, weirdly enough, like when I first started doing it, because it's responding to these objects, they say, I'm not going to say loads about it because, because I just want to, when I, when I talk about it, I want it to be the right thing. But I, but I want to say, when I first started working on this project, I was like, oh, it's just going to be a few songs because, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be, become obsessed with this place. But then I was on tour at the time and I'd been in this particular building and I just become became obsessed with all the things that I saw. And then when I arranged this visit back, I ended up staying for two weeks, working in this archive. And it was just like one thing led to another. This photograph led to something else. And then I, you know, and then I interviewed that person. And then I went to this place and I went to this exhibition and this exhibition. And it was just, um, it just became an obsession of mine. So this record is like a double album sort of. So it's like, I don't know, more than 20 songs. And I'm oh. writing songs for them all the time. I'm writing songs for it all the time. We've just got this plate reverb, which is like a huge, 
well, it's like a huge metal plate inside a wooden box and they just installed it in our studio. And as they were putting it in, I was like, okay, I've just finished another piece to this song that I've been writing for years. It's, it's a song. It's actually a song about Nina Simone. And I've had the title for ages in my head. And then when I saw this, I kind of imagined the sound of it that they make the reverb by sending the signal onto this metal plate and it sort of wobbles and just creates this really sort of gorgeous, lush, reverberant sound. And so when I saw that piece of equipment, I thought, right. And then I started finishing the song. And uh, I guess, yeah, it's not, it's not far off, but we are doing this huge studio reinstallment, which is keeping me out of the studio. But I think my frustration is helping to just get me to finish all the bits, you know, but yeah. And also not, not getting to tour is, it's like, it's, it's agony, but at the same time, the feeling, the juice that I would sort of get out of it, it's like, I have to put it into something else. So it's like, I've got all these different projects on the go, but I definitely want this record to come out this year. So I'm just trying to get that done. You said the song is about Nina Simone? The song's about Nina Simone. I mean, I love Nina Simone. And I read that biography when I was in my teens, I guess. And um, we're also seeing quite a lot of, you know, obviously I love her music and I've heard live concerts. And then, you know, the, you see the interviews that she gave as well. And, but yeah, there's a, there's a sort of poise. It's mainly about the, her poise. She's my favorite stands. singer of all time because mm. the way that she can make you feel is yeah. un is uh, uh, unparalleled. She can really yeah. reach into your spirit and like stick knives in there about love or pain or you know don't misunderstand yeah. me or what like it's like yes yeah yeah she she's incredible like that and she does a lot of stealth um stealth work as well. I can't think of the song. It's but it's about two children playing together, um a, a black child and a white child, and she's playing this melody that's almost like a sort of nursery rhymey and so she does a lot of stuff like that where it's like kind of classical-esque nursery rhyme filling and the melody sounds really simple but she's she's it's it's an extremely pointed song about segregation that you could imagine there's so many ways to talk about that but she's just talking about two children playing together who aren't aware that there's these structures around them that are they're going to keep them apart? Yeah, no, she's uh, she's so much. She's so much. Um, can you explain to the folks why it has been three albums from you in like fifteen years? So, I mean, yeah, it is hard. It's really hard to think. Like, it's hard to look at those statistics for me because I want to be prolific and I feel like I'm definitely moving into a period where there's like more ideas and more skill I guess I've learned you know I think I I take a long time to do things and I um yeah I take a long time to do things I think I second guess myself probably too much and there's definitely a thing about you know that first record was so successful and then I felt with the C I was given a lot of space because I had started to write that record and then, you know, halfway through the record, my late husband died completely unexpectedly. And so that 
in I mean at that time you know just in, in terms just not just personally but in terms of being a musician or whatever I in my world that was sort of like that was the end of my life you know I thought well this is the end of my life and I thought well I've had a really good life you know I'm 29 and I've done all this I've done all this stuff and um, I've had this record and we've got to tour the world and that was that was a good ride you know and then I just thought you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine sort of continuing. So there was definitely a period where I didn't sort of, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, when's my second record going to come out? It was just, everything was sort of frozen and, and, um, the time just became really sort of elastic, I guess. Um, and then when I did get back into the studio, I was finishing that record and then I was kind of comparing what I was writing to what I had written. And there was this theme of grief that had gone through it because you know and, and the first first half of that record I guess I was talking about a grief it was it was another family loss that I, was, I, I had been talking about so yeah so I think there was that moment I guess between the first and the second record and then I guess with the the heart speaks in whispers I was really conscious that I'd been given this sort of grace to make my own the, the record that I ever, you know, people at the label were saying, calling it the record you needed to make, which I didn't really, whatever that was. But I, I felt like I'd been given this grace to make my own record. And, you know, it was really critically, I guess, acclaimed, but it wasn't like a super mega smash record. And, um, yeah, I think with my third record, that really sort of slowed me down where I thought, I was getting my own way loads, you know, in a way that third record, it could have been three different records. I wrote so many songs for it. And I think so many of them were just being held up and I'm like, Oh, we love it. Yeah. Oh, it's not a single, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, Oh, we love it. Yeah. It's not going to go on the radio. So that definitely stymied me and, and it would then make me do it to myself where I'd be sort of halfway through something and think, does this sound like something I would hear on the radio? No, it doesn't. So, mm. you know, shall I, maybe I should not finish it. So, and I feel so free of that now, but that was definitely a really big thing when I was writing that record. Um, and I was so lucky at that time because I was in LA and I got to meet like Thundercat and I got to meet Paris and Amber from King, who I adore and who I've done, we've, we've worked together a lot and we've got like loads of things that we, every time I get together, we do something you know, so they, those guys really taught me a lot about freedom. Like Moses Sumney, he, at that time he was an unsigned artist, but he had a really strong sense of like, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. I'm not going to look to the left or the right. I'm not going to be pulled into people's expectations. You know, at the time there was loads of buzz around him because he had done something with, like Beck had chosen him to do one of the performances for Song Reader. And there was just like all this building excitement around him, but he really wanted to, make his record in his own way. And so I think being around that energy was like Moses and Stephen and Paris and Amber and Esperanza. They were, they just kind of made me feel okay with my own, I guess, well, my own making and my own creativity and not sort of thinking that I was sort of like a pop star who was doing it wrong, but that I was sort of an artist just expressing myself. But yeah, there was definitely a time where I was like, it's it's a funny thing when you're a really conscientious person because when you're in a label, you can see 
people getting fired because your thing isn't on time, you know? So it's mm. like you build these friendships and, and then it's like that guy's gone and this guy's gone and that woman's gone. And, it, and you're very aware that it's because you're either your work isn't commercial or your work isn't on time. And so all of those pressures didn't, really didn't help me at all. And you're, meeting these other artists really did free me. You're, I, I mean, part of what, I heard there was um, the loss of your husband was a huge disruptor in your life, which anybody could understand. And he was part of your musical life. He was a collaborator yeah. with you. So yeah. can you talk about how losing him changed you as a musician and as a musical person when this person who had been, you know, a, a key collaborator is suddenly not there anymore? I mean, Jason was a massive influence on me because he was so hip, you know, like when I first met him, he was, he, he had this like dyed blonde hair. Like I guess he had just decided he wanted to dye his hair. So he had this like crazy dyed blonde hair and he was like, he was Scottish and super tall and he had blue eyes and it's like, and he played the saxophone and he loved like Maceo Parker. And then I remember going to his house and he was reading like the vulture by Gil Scott Heron and, and he had all these amazing posters on his wall. And he was very, obviously he was a Scottish and white musician, but he was very uh, connected with like hip hop culture and jazz and, um, and the politics around that. So it was really, we were able to talk really uh, freely and easily about, you know, lots of different things. And he was a big reader and he was really bright and, and he'd be like, oh, you haven't heard of this, 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 and this. So he always, like, introduced me to loads and loads and loads of music, which was an amazing thing. And I guess, you know, introducing me to jazz to a certain extent in terms of thinking about improvisation, you know. So, and just being, like, a jazz girlfriend or jazz wife eventually, it was like I've just been at so many gigs where so much of the music was improvised or I would, or I'd hear him practicing and just be like, he's just generating this every time, you know, I, I would know it was true improvisation. He, he wasn't just like learning a thing at home to try on stage. He was just like, every time he would be able to throw it out. He's the sort of musician when I worked at that club, I would be waitressing or cleaning tables and he would do the sound check and he'd be the sort of musician that when he was doing his sound check, like, the glasses would stop clinking. The people would stop talking. It was just very direct, you know. He had just had this, he had the thing, you know. He had the thing where it's like the song starts and it's going along and then suddenly it just like just takes off. So I, I liked his boldness and his freedom was a real door opener to me, I guess, to like not be so timid or shy or just be more free and really sort of just do it, do it for real. If you did it for real, it would, it would work, you know? So, yeah. So, so to not have him around in terms of how it affected my music was, I, I also, there was a phase, I guess, when I was doing stuff because I wanted, you know, like I wanted him to see it and approve of it and support it. And then it, so it was weird not to have him, but yeah, I think bigger than music, it was just such a huge, a huge thing personally because we were so young and because this good thing had happened, we'd both come from backgrounds where we, you know, we weren't, we didn't have money and we really wanted success, whatever that looked like. So it was like that year, sort of 2006, it was like, 
move out of the tiny home with the kitchen where you can barely stand out, stand up in, to move to a big house. And he was on tour with Mark Ronson and I was on tour and it was like, everything's opening up for us. Are we going to like travel around France or are we going to do this or are we going to do that? And it was so, it's all like, because we were early, you know, it's early in a marriage as well. It's like, what is going to happen for us? And so that was really difficult. But also, you know, our marriage had another part to it because he was really, um, I guess he, I never know exactly how to phrase it or how I would think of it. But when we first got together, you know, everyone used to go out and everyone used to drink. I've never been a big drinker and I'm not like into drugs because for many, many reasons that can't be discussed on this podcast. I'm just like, that's not, that's not my world, you know. But I guess it was kind of, he was interested in trying all these experiences. So there was that side to our relationship as well, where it's like, we're at the gig and everything's, you know, we've been there till three, three in the morning, but he wants to keep the party. He would always want to keep the party going, you know? So that was definitely like a hard part of our relationship where he would want to go into that world more than I did. And yeah, that, that was not fun, I guess. Yeah. That was hard. That was a hard part of it. Did music get you through the trouble or did you have to like leave music alone for a while? Cause that was no, mu- where you music was def- musically definitely sort of got me through. And I remember, you know, I remember seeing it was a Nina Simone performance. It was from Montreux jazz festival. I think you can just watch it on YouTube now, but at the time it wasn't, the, the footage wasn't anywhere. And I think like Questlove had given me it, a session we had done with Al Green. He's like, Oh, you need to have this. I remember just sort of watching that sort of over and over and seeing her sort of, she was stoic, so she was strong, but she was also incredibly vulnerable and porous. So it's like everything was kind of leaking out, but at the same time she was still able to kind of to stand up. And I remember sort of being like, I will make it because I see her standing there, like in total self-possession, but with all the pain sort of leaking out. Like I, I specifically remember that that um, footage, you know. That was a big thing. Patti Smith became really important to me. And I didn't even know her music at the, inside out, but I knew her as a poet. So I started to read and read and read all this. Like I'm just looking here, I've got this. I'll show you. I've got this photo. This is a Patti Smith photo. Oh. And she's like sitting on a bed. You can see her room is very sparse but she got like the rosary beads and she's like being a poet so it's definitely looking at all these I guess famous widows you know she she had lost her husband young and then I was like looking at Yoko and I was looking at you know I would look at these photos of Yoko and be like when was this taken is she smiling like if I could find a photo of her where she seemed to be experiencing joy that was after John Lennon died I'd think well, it's, it's possible because here's this photo of Yoko smiling or like here's Patti Smith still doing what she does. So, yeah, just I guess I just became interested in sort of like widows, like, you know, widows, like people who have survived losing their half of them, you know, that's I guess when you're in a marriage. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alameen a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You sort of, you're deliberately trying to dissolve the walls between you. So you, you think of yourself as one person to a certain extent. And so, yeah, it was like Pi Smith, Nina Simone, um, you know, looking at Yoko Ono as, I guess, as a poet and just avant garde artist. And um, yeah, just. But yeah, that Nina Simone concert was a really important one. You referenced something there that I want to talk about um, in terms of money, because you don't grow up with much, and now yeah. you're pretty comfortable. And I like to ask everybody, what has having money given you? Well, I, I mean, I would be really honest about that. I mean, when you don't have money you have a bunch of worries. Like people used to say to me, oh, how come you guys don't ever go on holiday? I was like, well, when we can't afford it, and even if we could afford the flight, the hotel, the spending money, it's like, what if something goes wrong? What if you get there and the hotel's terrible or the flight or whatever it is? It's like, we wouldn't have anything spare. There's no, when you don't have spare, any spare money, it's like you don't have a safety net, you know? And, um, you know, people say, oh, money doesn't do this. And money just like, of course, money gives you a certain amount of security. So, you know, it's an amazing thing to be somewhere and think, or like going in the supermarket, you know, you're pushing the trolley and think, I'd like this, 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 this. And then you go and pay for it on your card and then you leave, you know, as opposed to adding it up and thinking, I can't afford this one. I'll leave that. I can't afford that brand. I'll have something else. You know, that, that is how I grew up. You know, I remember being in the supermarket and like going with my mum and putting all the stuff in and getting to the checkout. And it's like the card bounced and just having to leave the food there. Like I remember that that only happened once, but you remember things like that. And, you know, my mum was always really good with money and she cleaned houses and then she worked in a school. And so, yeah, it's, it is a really important thing to think about. And I think, Basically, since since I've been able to afford stuff, 
you know, when, you know, people who are rich, they say things like, I don't think about money. That's because they don't have to think about money, you know? So it's a real thing that when you can go to a supermarket, you can just buy food that you need or you can have supplies in the house because you're not thinking, well, I can't afford it this month. I'll have to ration it out. Like, I think just it takes away a certain amount of worries. I'm not saying money solves all your life problems, but, you know, not having to worry about how to pay the water, the gas, the electricity, how to pay for your house, you know, that is a transformative thing. Like, I don't care what anyone says. Like, everything from there on is like, when people get into crazy, like, oh, I've bought these handbags and I've got five cars and all of that. That's not the, that's not my life, you know, but actually not having to think about the things that are coming out of your bank to cover the basic things is, is a massive relief, you know? It's, it's relief. It's freedom. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm curious. I ask a lot of people about what being black means to them and I'm really curious to hear what you would have to say growing up in, you know, a whole other culture, a whole other country where race functions differently in some ways, um, in some ways. So um, what does being black mean to you? I think when I was growing up, um, I think blackness is definitely something that I have grown into, partly because I think blackness itself has expanded. Um, It's funny because I've just... I'm in the middle of reading your book. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you. Well, no, I mean, I'm not reading it to like, uh, for any other reason, not, not doing homework, but it's, it's a really fascinating book. And the idea of blackness is sort of how big can blackness be? You know, can blackness stretch and stretch and incorporate us all and all of our individual styles? And, and, and of course it can, and it can be, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I feel like we've, in terms of being a person, a black person, a person of colour, you know, whatever term it would be at that time, you know, because my mum is white and my dad's black. My dad's from the Caribbean. My mum's English. Which island? So think, my dad's from St. Kitts. So St. Kitts is like the smallest, St. Kitts and Nevis is the smallest country in the Western Hemisphere. And it's beautiful. And, and um, yeah, you I. I, uh, he grew up in the Caribbean and then he came here as a teenager. And then my parents met on the soul scene, you know, and like, I guess they liked the same music. And there's been a lot of movement in the UK between sort of white working class culture and, and Caribbean culture. So it wasn't that unusual for people, to, you know, they and their peers, they knew a lot of people who were, you know, one of the people's black, one of the people's white. I knew quite a lot of, at the time, it was like, well, I always hate that term half-caste, but that's what it was. That's what you got called. I remember we, we called ourselves brown. I always thought, like, everyone's dad was black and everyone's mum was white until I, I guess I got to school. And, oh, it's not the same way. But I always thought, like, daddies were brown and mummies were, were white, you know? Because <laughs> that was what was normal for me. And then, you know, I guess I had that thing of like growing up in two cultures that were quite similar, but in some ways different. So we spent a lot of time with my dad's family in the part of Leeds, which has a lot of Caribbean families. And then my mum's family is more sort of white working class. So a lot of things are similar, like food and the, but, but yeah, I guess I, I had a thing of like, 
well, I love blackness because I'm learning about blackness, I guess, in a sort of thing around my family, but also in an in, in a sort of academic way, you know? So it's like I became interested in, you know, my auntie sent me a book of like, there's that classic book of like six slave narratives and it's like W.E.B. Dubois, um, um, the tale of Harriet Jacobs, Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass I can't remember who else was in that group but so it's like I would sort of read that and she would always send us like African American books like skipping rhymes and so I felt like I guess when I was young I felt like blackness was a thing that was definitely in America you know and it was definitely in music and culture and then I guess in in England it was in culture so you know I guess I would see people on like music television and know that they were black and I'd feel myself to be black, but then there would be certain times when I'd be around other black people and they would say, they would say half caste and that would be a, like a differentiator between like them as black and me as not black. So yeah, I guess I sort of felt. That really hurts. Yeah. Sometimes I felt like I was into the two worlds and sometimes I felt like I was in my own world and then, but yeah, I guess now I just feel, I feel like uh, that blackness is a, is a big enough term to, to fit me in. And I, and I feel myself to be black and I feel myself to be connected to my ancestors and, and they are, I guess, you know, they are black and they are white, but they are, they're with me. And, you know, especially having children, I, I feel, you know, I'm holding a baby or like breastfeeding a baby. So it's like, that's a big part of my life, just holding a baby. And I feel like I can, I can get back to all these different stories and all these different women in the chain of my life that have, have done that, you know, done that work, that like given food to a baby that's come out of them. You know, it's very, um, you, you really feel that connection, I think, when you have when you have children. So, yeah, I guess I feel like my my sort of blackness is, I feel like I, the term's grown for me and I feel like it fits me now and I don't feel like I have to sort of justify it. Like, I definitely recognise why some black people would be like, no, you are not black because you're in this in-between. Like, I fully understand why some people would say, you don't fit into this box. And at the same time, I feel comfortable with the fact that they would think that, whereas I feel here I am in this, this I mean, is a very, I, very big box. I don't yeah. think it's fair to differentiate you or another mixed person from a black, from a person who has two black parents. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, we have similar experiences in the world. And when we go into the world, White supremacy does not say, oh, you have one white parent, so you get some benefit. Yeah. Uh, you know, and obviously we I mean, understand I, I colorism. I mean, I guess there but, is a little bit of that, isn't there? There's like sort of like light skin privilege, all that, all that yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Like that is definitely real. And I think the thing of being able to, I guess, growing up in a white family, it's almost like you get you get to speak those two different languages. So, but I know what you're saying as well, that blackness is also about see, being seen from the outside and that's what I was also thinking about with your book and I was thinking you know blackness isn't defined by our experience of racism like say you were a black person dropped and 
I don't know, a tropical island all on your own. It was just you and your black family. You'd still be a black family, even though you didn't know that some people didn't like black people. Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't make you less, it wouldn't make you less black if you were just like skipping through, you know, that, do you remember that hashtag carefree black girl? I feel like it came around just before um, black girl magic. Okay. But, but carefree black girl was like used and then it was suddenly not used. And I, I always felt it was a, a thing in some people of like to be carefree and to be black was for some people it didn't, it didn't add up like almost like the price of black authenticity was to be careworn or if you weren't, it was because it was because you haven't really experienced the full thing of being black, which was being experiencing, you know, the pain of the racialization of blackness. Mm. I mean, your love of black culture is not mediated because your mom is white. You still feel a connection to Stevie Wonder and Billie Holiday and, you know, Marvin Gaye and who built, you know, on and on and on, because that is also in your blood and you see, you see them, you feel a connection to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel that connection and I feel that connection to, you know, my ancestors. And it's been an interesting thing talking to so many um, black people in America, because I definitely think that the way that we're taught about history and black history is that we don't learn about the Caribbean and the, you know, like the the slave trade in the Caribbean and how it's parallel happens at exactly the same time as what's happening in America. You know, sometimes it's the same ships they're picking mm-hmm. up goods from Africa and they're going to the Caribbean and they're taking goods from there and people and they're going to America and they're going to the UK, you know. And so, I mean, so I think a lot of, you know, some people I've spoken to don't look at the link of why there are so many black people in the Caribbean, you know, like black people aren't native to the Caribbean, you know, that they're West Africans. Um, I feel like the way that cult that uh, black history is taught in America, is very, it it sort of um, separates American black people are from the rest of the world, black people, you know, that was Nina Simone's thing is she didn't like that term civil rights because she felt like it, it, it locked it to America and it, it should be looking at the, the whole world, you know, and realizing that this issue is, is, is global. And that would give black people in America and the rest of the world, a sense of connection to one another. It is empowering to have that diasporic mindset that you're talking about. I do see, however, if you don't live here in America before you're like a teenager, you're, I I see this over and over and over with my book and some of the people who I interviewed and didn't include in the book, um, that they, they just kind of like, I just don't fully get it. I Mm -hmm. like, like what you guys are doing in terms of race and like, it doesn't, Ah. it doesn't land for me the same. And it's almost like America is its own planet when it comes to race his own planet. And even, you know, I, when I went for the first time, I guess with my music and I was in my mid twenties by then, and I was still astounded that we were going to like the white radio station where everyone was white and the black radio station where everyone was black. And at the black radio station, everybody wore this kind of clothes and the white radio station, everyone wore those kind of clothes. And And I really felt it was really sort of, it was like seasick for me 
I mean, I think in the UK, class is Trump's race. You know, it's still all about your class background. People can tell if you're working class from your accent. Like, people would know that I'm working class from the way I speak. And, um, you know, that affects what school you go to and it affects how what gestures you'd use or how you would do your hair, what clothes you would wear or where you'd go on holiday and all of those, those things speak really loud. Those networks here are very, very old. You know, so if it, it, it stays with you even if you transcend it. So you're still a working class person because that's where you were born, even though I you're it, clearly yeah, an upper class person now. It's like, you know, they have that term new money or whatever. Like you could be, you could be poor, but from like an old family and that would stand for a lot like in the UK, like class is still really massive and you could be wealthy, but your the way you speak would give you away, you know? So that, that is a really big thing here. But I mean, obviously race is, is still very, very big here, but there wasn't the same amount of le- like legalized separation of people, you know? And I also think that thing about Caribbeans, you know, I was thinking about my dad and his family. They were the, ethnic majority in the Caribbean. So it's like, even though they were under colonial oppression, the banker was black and the school teacher was black and the police woman, woman was black and the judges were black and there was, they were in blackness and, a, and um, they were the majority, you know, and I think that's very different from growing up in a culture where you are, you are the minority, you know, and where, and I also think for black people in this country, when they came in a big presence, it wasn't, it was outside of the context of slavery. It was through the army or through um, just straightforward immigration. You know, it was lots of, when my dad's family came, it was lots of kind of lower middle class black families coming with their white gloves on and their, but, you know, things tied under their chin. And it was very different from, um, I guess the majority of white population being around black people who had been degrading and subjugated and perceived as not being human and, and, you know, living in property, you know, living as presented as property, you know, do you know what I mean? That the way people were perceived is, was different. And that made a huge difference, I think, to their, their experience. Do, um, let me, uh, make a sharp turn. You watch The Crown? Where's The Crown? Do you watch The Crown? I don't watch The Crown, but I guess I, I sort of, you know, I know about it. I know a little, a little bit, I guess, I guess around well, I guess that royal the real, history. The, but yeah, it's very question, strange. We have a queen in this country. We have well, a yeah, the family. real question isn't about the, the show. Uh, that was just sort of a temperature check, I guess. Like, yeah, like, what do you, I'm curious, what do you, like, do you think that, like, it's cool that you guys have a queen and all that? Or do you think like, that's ridiculous? No, I mean, I don't, I'm a, he, you would call it a, it's a Republican, which is someone who believes we shouldn't have, we should have an elected head of state, like most other de- democracies. So, I mean, it's really strange that we have a royal family, not just strange, but the royal family owns a massive amount of land in this country. And then most of the families who are wealthy are people who, you know, a thousand years ago did some dealings for the royal family and were given like, oh, here's, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, square miles of this part of the country or, or, or whatever. I'm very bad at geography. Maybe that is not, a, the, not the right size. <laughs> but, 
It's okay. But people who have wealth in this, you know, people who have wealth in this country, that they can trace it back to their sort of interaction with things that they did, you know, for the royal family a long time ago. So, I mean, in theory, the queen doesn't have any official power and she just kind of rubber stamps all the things that are passed in the leg legislature but there has been times where the queen's intervened and um, prince charles also you know writes to mps and is quite influential so yeah i mean i'm extremely uncomfortable with the fact that we have people who have power in this country that aren't elected you know and look yeah. you know look what's just happened with like Meghan and harry they they have sort of chosen to take off their royalty and i wonder how it'll you know how it will be I, it's a very strange thing for us that we know who the next one two three heads of state will be you know one of them's a child right now and so yeah i mean i don't think that i think there's there's massive poverty in this country and then there's huge privilege and it's not people who even like set up a railroad or swindles you know oil barons or well, these are just these are people who descended from um, you know, people who had military might who were able to suppress the people of this country. So, yeah, I I, I can't believe we still have um, a royal family. I I don't know how you would kind of undo it. You know, I'm not like um, I haven't got any ideas. But yeah, I think an elected head of state is, is you know people people have worked that out. I think we should have that too. Um, I could talk to you all day and I could listen to your voice all day. Cause just your speaking voice is just so beautiful and easy oh, to listen you. to. And, um, what's your superpower? What is the thing you do better than other people that has <laughs> led to your success? Oh gosh. I don't know. I mean, I really, I honestly feel cause I am sort of, you know, like a socialist and I really feel that success is so much just down to uh, things outside of your control, you know, because, you know, I'm a musician and loads of my friends are musicians. So it's like I know there's people who I rate as being better singers than me. Uh, there's people who I rate who are better writers than me who aren't at this moment not worrying about how their electricity bill is going to get paid, you know. So I I don't feel that we live in a meritocracy where you know, where you just say like, oh, I've been successful because I'm this, this and this. I'm going to write a book about it. And then you too. I really don't feel that. I feel like um, so much just happens because of the hands of fate and chance. And um, I feel that some people are rewarded disproportionately for what they do. You know, like I feel like I work hard, but do I work harder than like a nurse you know like I don't work harder than a nurse probably and and uh so I don't feel like I could sit and say these are the reasons why I've been able to make music and be successful in music but I am I extremely grateful yes I, re I really am you know every time I get to go on stage I just feel like oh, I can't believe I get to do this or every time I get to work with one of my heroes or even meet them, you know, meet Stevie Wonder or Herbie or like Wayne Shorter, or I just sort of think, you know, this is a dream life for me. And I, and I feel incredibly lucky. I feel lucky for my whole journey and all the things that have happened to me. And, um, so yeah, if I have a superpower, it's like gratitude, you know, I feel extremely grateful and, and I don't take any of it for granted. And, um, 
you know, I'm just, I'm just happy that I get to get to make music and I just want to make more and more and more. That's beautiful. Um, it's an honor to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. I'm super grateful to have this really time nice with to talk you. to you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Corinne for a great interview. This was really awesome and quite an honor and a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Keena Murphy, and Earl Dorsey. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. And of course on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.